I went to the school that my dad taught at. That play, that, that first play that I did was directed by him. Were you like, come on, this, this is the part I get? Were you a little yeah. like... Yeah, what a, yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty disappointing. Welcome and thank you for listening to Almost Almost Famous, the podcast where actors, writers, comedians talk about the ups and downs, ebbs and flows of working towards making in this crazy biz and how they're almost, almost famous. I'm your host, Daniel Acker. On the show today is an incredible actor who's been on Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Modern Family, Future Man, Single Parents, and more. I'm so glad to get to speak with the one and only Tim Horner. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Good. It's great to see you. Pretty impressive resume there. Oh, yeah. Seriously. I believe all those shows are canceled. Single Parents was, I think, the last one that was holding off, and they were, uh, it was just announced that it was canceled as well. Tim is known as the Grim Reaper in this acting <laughs> Well, I don't know if they all were canceled. Some, some have finished the run, like Parks and Rec and Modern Family. Yes. Had pretty right. successful, pretty successful goes. That's true. Yes. Yeah, that's a very impressive resume. You've been a busy bee. You've been working for a long time. When did you feel you kind of hit your stride with auditions and booking? Like, do you feel like you hit a moment where you're like, oh, okay, I can do this? You know, I, I feel like I've hit it a couple of different times. And then and like everything, it's like a golf swing or something. You find it and you're in a groove for a while and then you kind of lose it and you get the yips or something and you can't figure it out. You know, it's so much, <clears throat> so much for me is just about practice. You know, acting in general you, you know, you study and you train it. And then after, so you're doing it every day in school or whatever, at least I was, I studied acting in school. And then I started doing theater in Seattle mainly. And that's the same thing. You're actually acting every single day. And then you do well enough and you feel confident enough to make the move to LA and you stop acting, you know, like you'll go, you go months and months and months without acting, you know, a, a commercial audition. I've, I've done commercial auditions pretty regularly since moving here, whatever, 14, 15 years ago. But that's not, you know, that's not the same. And so, you know, it's it really like if, if auditions are coming and I'm, and I'm getting out a lot, you know, you kind of find your groove and you start, I feel like I start to audition really well. And, and typically my jobs reflect that. And, and then you go through a couple of months where the auditions are slow and you forget how to do it kind of. It's, it really is, it's about, it's about being warm um, for me. Yeah, it's the consistency that really helps this because you're, it's so true. Like right. you can have a period where you're like, oh, I have a bunch of auditions. First few might get some rust off, but then by the end, it's just old hat. It's like, oh, it's second nature. You got yeah. it. But this business does have an ability to give you long stretches where you don't have an audition making almost a commercial audition that you could breeze through a big thing or you get in your head about. Right. Yeah, it's exactly right. And it's, and it is, it's a, the work is necessarily social. You're always acting off of somebody you're working with people in the work and, um, and you just spend so much of your actual time driving around town alone and reading a line or two to a, you know, to a video camera on the other side of the room or whatever. It's, 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 it's difficult mm -hmm. to keep yourself in shape. So yeah, I feel I feel like I hit hit a groove once or twice a year, and I feel like I'm not auditioning well a couple of times a year as well. You know. Gotcha. Yeah, because it is a it's a muscle. You have to work it out. And right. what's interesting is how I understand the audition process, but it isn't 
a complete one-to-one -one what the acting process is. And it's an entirely different experience. Your, your, you know, your ability as an auditioner, I, I really feel has almost nothing to do with your abilities as, as an actor or your ability to, um, to deliver the work on the day. You know? They're two different skills. And weirdly, it's more important to be a good auditioner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, at least for the first for the first chunk of your career, you know, I am a good auditioner. I've always have been. You know what I mean? Like I, I am. A, I'm. I'm a really good cold reader. I am. I'm one of those people, probably. Yeah, <laughs> is a better auditioner than I am on the day, actually. <laughs> um, but uh, um, I guess I'm lucky that way, particularly with commercials. But it's a weird. It's the, the whole thing is a weird job. Yeah. What point in your life were you like, acting is the thing for me? Was it you were little and you always knew it or was it later in life? It was a really slow process for me. My dad was, he's retired now, but he was a college theater professor for most of my life. And we lived in Spokane, Washington, which is not a particularly cosmopolitan hub. You know, it's not a big arts community, particularly. I didn't grow up around the business but I did grow up around acting and plays and, and things like that. I was, you know, we saw all my dad's plays at the, at the university that he taught at. But I was into music. I was into other things. I didn't, I didn't do any acting. He never, it was not something that they pushed on me or whatever. You know, I, was, I, I, I never really had an intention to do it. I was a cellist. And when I was 18, I broke my neck in a freak accident and I was paralyzed. Um, for a time and lost the ability to play the cello. So about a year after that, I was still kind of hobbling around with two canes and things like that and a neck brace, but I was craving a creative outlet and I couldn't play the cello anymore. And so I auditioned for a play. That was really the first time I'd ever done it. Got a, just a small part in a Moliere play. And I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I did, I, I was good at it. I enjoy, I started taking some theater, you know, acting classes or whatever at the school. I made good friends. But when I graduated, I was still like a kid from Spokane who didn't, you know, I didn't really understand. I didn't understand the business at all. The business of like LA, the industry business, or just like even what being a regional theater actor, or I just didn't really understand that acting was actually a job that you could have. So I was kind of wayward for most of my 20s. Just, I just was working in offices and things and Ended up going to grad school at the age of like 24, 25 to get my MFA in acting. And it was there. Truthfully, when I went to grad school, I was thinking I wanted to probably be a teacher and would use that degree to teach. But it was the process of going to grad school that I decided that I, I really loved acting specifically and that I wanted to try and do it. And since then, that's all I've done. Sometimes doing like the regional theater thing and, and for the last 15 years here in LA, um, scraping up, you know, scraping out an income. Well, it's interesting that your father was a theater professor. Did you have, especially going through grad school and getting your MFA in theater, I feel like in most families, if there's an actor, it's not like someone else can speak on an academic level about it or can talk through scene studies or anything. But did you, did you guys have conversations about your process or your work? Or Totally. Well, in fact... It wasn't my intention. Again, I broke my neck at 18, right before my high school graduation. I had been planning to go to Baylor University in Texas. And because of my injury, I just wasn't physically uh, able to move across the country. And so 
I went to the school that my dad taught at. That play, that, that first play that I did was directed by him. Were you like, come on, this, this is the part I get? Were you a little yeah. like... Yeah, what a, yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty disappointing. Um, uh, no, but you know, he was, a, he was a professor of mine through my undergrad experience. And for sure, it's been a cool thing because it is. There is a degree to which it, there, you know, uh, I'm kind of taking over the family business a little bit. Uh, we connect in that way. And yeah, he was always more of a director than an actor. And I'm not a good director. He was always a little bit more academic, you know, theater history and dramaturgy than I have been. But I took all those classes, you know, and it was great to have him as a resource and to, to connect. Yeah, it's definitely been a thing that we've bonded over. Interestingly, though, he's like, you know, anytime he's seen my work, he's, um, it's always a glowing review. He's loved everything he's ever seen me do even the stuff that did not deserve that kind of praise, you know? And my mom, who was just a career first grade teacher and a very sweet lady, is the really, really tough critic. Like, I know something is good that I've done if my mom compliments it, uh, because my dad, the, the, you know, the haughty professor, he just loves everything, so. Fun. I'm always, I'm always more interested in impressing my mom, but it's been nice to have it to bond with, to bond over with my dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would, you would assume that your dad would be the one giving the harsh critiques or notes, but maybe he's like, he gets to watch you and he's like, I'm not grading anymore. I'm not doing, I'm not really critiquing. I just get to right. my son act and I love it. And your mom is able to sit there and be like, eh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was always fun to look out into the audience at groundling shows and see, see the two of them. And, uh, my dad just having the time of his life and my mom, you know, there yeah seen better yeah now eventually so you are doing theater up in uh washington state and then you make your way to la how did you find your way to groundlings or a focus in comedy i guess i had done a lot of improv work up in seattle there's a company up there called unexpected productions and um artistic director up there is a guy named randy dixon who's just a really sharp really he's a great teacher He's a great improv director, very talented improviser. And he was a, and he was a Del Close disciple. He was a, a friend and um, student of Dell's. So my training was really consistent with like the IO, you know, more like the IO UCB model of improv. And so when I moved down here, I just wasn't really, and I'd done a lot of it. I just wasn't excited about starting a 100 level class at IO or UCB Mm -hmm. and retaking the Herald class that I had done 10 years ago or whatever. And so really I just started, I didn't really, I just started Groundlings just because they have a different approach to the work. You know, it's to to my way of thinking, the Groundlings approach to improv is more of an actor's improv and IO and UCB is almost, at least to me, more helpful as a writer. It's, you know, it's understanding what makes a story and a scene. Whereas Groundlings, they don't really care about the story or the scene. It's just get into a character and see where it takes you. So just because it was different, I just wanted to have a different tool in my toolbox kind of as how to approach, how to approach the work. So I just started at the Groundlings. And, um, and there was a lot that I really appreciated there about their training and about their classes. Uh, um, I liked that, there, you know, that there's a competitiveness to it, that, that, that people get cut. I like that you kind of have to earn your way onto the stage. So yeah, so I just sort of kept going. 
in and found my way into the Sunday company, which was a really great experience for me. Mm-hmm. And definitely a, a moment where career stuff shifted for me as well. You know, it really did improve my, my agents and, and things like that. And, and I went from auditioning almost exclusively in commercials and booking almost exclusively commercials to having a much more balanced career between commercials and, you know, TV stuff, which, which has always been my goal. Mm. Yeah. If you were to say kind of dream job or dream work, would you, would you prefer TV over film? For sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. I would, I think. Yeah. I just, you know, I, 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 I share no, like I, I share no, personality qualities with most actors kind of I really just want to I would love to just have a nine-to-five job (laughs) you know Um, I would I wish I just had some passion for software programming or something you know what I mean where you just you got to show up at nine and you got to leave at five and it was pretty clear what you were supposed to do and uh, you worked with people that you liked I really have a kind of a like a tradesman attitude about acting i just want to book a job and i just want to show up and i want to do the work and so yes like to to just be an ensemble member you know a series regular on honestly any show yeah. any anything i would love a smartly written ensemble comedy of course yeah um i think that yeah something in the the office and parks and you know the stuff that i have actually been cast in is kind of the stuff that I'm right for that style of comedy. And that would be the dream. But man, if I got to play just like the dude on the computer back at the NCIS office or whatever, that would be awesome. Yeah. I would love it. So yeah, the, 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 the stability of just knowing you got this job for whatever it is, three or six or nine months, or hopefully if it's a successful show, a couple of years, and you have hiatuses and you have general work hours. That's, that's the life that I most, most want. Yeah. And would you, you gravitate more towards comedy, but you definitely have a theater background that I'm sure you did plenty of dramatic works. Do you miss doing drama do you like doing both or are you kind of like i'm really fine with just keep doing comedy yeah i mean i'm happy to do whatever yes i've done a lot of dramatic work in theater i've done very very little on camera frankly i'm a little nervous about it i I do think that there is you know like there is there are differences between acting on the stage and acting for the camera and the camera really it's it's really really difficult to to act it's difficult to lie to the camera right? Mm-hmm. The camera picks up on your natural biorhythms and, and, and energies and the vibe that you put out. So yeah, I'm, I, you know, I, I have played villains. I don't know how successfully I would be able to do that on camera. Yeah. Cause I agree. Like on the stage, you can be acting, you can be in the moment, but you can also have that slight thought sometimes of like, this is silly or like, this isn't that great, but the audience doesn't see it. But the second right. the camera gets a close up. Right. The moment you have the thought of like, what am I doing? It sees yeah. it and it's very clear. Right. And you can edit around it, you know, what you can't do on the stage, but it sees, you know, it sees the truth. And so do casting directors, I think. And, uh, and so you get cast as characters that are appropriate to your energy, you know, yeah. and uh, until you have the, the credibility to be cast against type, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm not there yet in my career. I'm still proving to people that I, I can be cast as type. In this career, have you 
created for yourself a personal definition of success? Um, I, I wouldn't know. I, I don't know that I've, I've a, a specific one for the career. No, you know, I have life attitudes about that. And truthfully, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about it all. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of uncertainty right now in the business and in our business all the time. You know, there's no, I don't have any job security. So, you know, you, 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 it's until you, until you reach a certain level in this business, you don't necessarily, you, you don't know what your life looks like in five years. But for me, yeah, it really is. I, 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 you know, I want healthy relationships. I want a happy family. I want a reasonable place to live. I want to do a job that I enjoy. And like all of those things are a reality for me in my life, which I'm like really happy about. You know, I do. I've got a great marriage and I got two healthy young boys and we were able to buy a home in Los Angeles, which is not the easiest thing to do. And it's like, it's a, it's a perfectly nice one in a lovely neighborhood. And, you know, I do, I love my job and it is affording me and my family a pretty nice life so far. We'll see what happens. You know, like I need work to happen and it might be a while. So there's a lot of uncertainty right now, but, but that's all I want. I want to, I want to make a living. I would like more job security and hopefully that's not too, you know, not too distant future, but I just want to have a job that I love and, and, uh, and a family that I'm close to really. And, and that's, that's happening for me. So that's all good. Um, I don't, I've never really, I don't have aspirations for fame. I don't have aspirations for great wealth. I, I have aspirations for comfort, ease. Life is hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Life is hard. Uh, it's the nine to five mentality you have. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, let me just clock in, clock out. Yep. Have dinner with the family. I have a, tr- I have a trade. It, ha- it has a certain market value. I offer my services and I'm just trying to scrape out a living. You know what I mean? If mm-hmm. I was, you know, it's, it's the thing I can do. Act. Yeah. It's the thing that I can do that I enjoy and that I've managed to get people to pay me to do enough to pay a mortgage. So um, I'm yeah. sticking with it as long as I can. Yeah. Well, I think there's something you take comfort in the comfort and the, your necessities, your needs are met. You have food on the table, healthy family, a roof over your head. It's kind of like, great, those boxes are checked and those boxes are checked from doing something that I actually genuinely enjoy, you're good. You're content. There isn't this pull of like, well, I need more. I want, I need bigger and better. It's like those things, if they come, great, but. I know people of all levels of success in this business, you know, and Mm -hmm. nobody's having a different experience of it. You know what I mean? Mm. My, my friend Abby is, is now like, She's got her second series regular now. You know what I mean? She's like, she was where we were about five years ago. And she's, she's now just kind of up, just above the line and doing really well. And, but she's panicked about the next job. You know what I mean? And I did a short film a couple of years ago with Jessica Biel. <laughs> no big deal. Big movie yeah. star. And I remember she was, you know, she was lovely. But she was talking at the time about like how, you know, Anne Hathaway's picking all of her jobs. And she doesn't, what, what, you know, what's, what's, uh, you know what I mean? Where's, where's her, where's her career going to be next year? You know what I mean? It's like, nobody, nobody is c- comfortable. Nobody is yeah. the most successful 
in this business. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, yeah. it's your attitudes about success or your personal happiness has nothing to do with how successful you are in the, in the business, you know? Being content with where you are and how far you've come seems healthier than always looking at what you don't have. For sure. And it's also like what, you know, there's, there's people that are doing very, very well and making millions and millions of dollars who, who just don't have any personal time, don't have any time with their kids or, or spouses. That's not a life I crave. Now, as we know, there are always moments when work is slow or non-existent. What do you find helps you ride those stretches of between work and non-work? Uh, that changes too, you know. Um, there's the kids. Kids changed that. Before kids, I was, you know, I was writing a lot more and just staying active, you know, web series with friends, whatever. And now it's just like, I don't, I'm not, I don't think about it. If I don't have an audition that day, that just <laughs> means that, you know, I, uh, I have other crap to do because I'm a, I'm a dad. Um, yeah, it's just, that's right now. And this will change again as the, as the boys become more self-sufficient. But right now, anytime that I'm not like actively earning money for my job, whether that's auditioning or actually being on set somewhere, I'm either with my kids or I'm paying money <laughs> for somebody to be watching my kids. So it's one thing when you don't have kids to just be like, hey, you wanna have brunch and talk about a web series? That is actually sometimes productive time well spent in the before days. That is, it's liter you know, time is literally money when you have kids because you have 24 hours a day an obligation to be watching them or paying somebody to. So, so truthfully, this time has not been like a productive artistic time for me. The, 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 the times where the work has been slow, but it's been productive in other ways, you know. Do you find that now that you, you know, have kids, these moments of non-work don't feel maybe as stressful as they used to before kids where you're like, Oh, I gotta be doing something or something where it's like, it's a different stress because, uh, cause now you have, now you have, you know, mouths you need to feed, et cetera, you know, before slow period, you know, all I, I've, I have, I've made a living as an actor now for like 18 years, 17, 18 years. And for the first 10 or 12 of that, that was largely a testament to how little I was able to live on more than how much I was earning. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I could live in a shitty studio apartment with cockroaches, you know, basement apartment in Seattle, Washington is like the most depressing possible place to live. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was there for a couple of years, you know, you can live really, really cheaply if you are willing to, and that changes. So I need to earn. I have an, I have a, mm -hmm. I have a, a much more specific obligation to earn. I can't be quite as just like nomadic and hungry as I was before, but your perspective about all of it is healthier too. Um, because yes, you've got this wonderful distraction. You've got this really positive thing that, that you're, you're pouring your time into and that benefits you in, in a lot of ways. It benefits you in your frame of mind about it. It, it does benefit your work just as a becoming a human with a, a deeper perspective about things or a different perspective about things than you had before, you know? And I mean, it's interesting. Definitely people do not have this life experience where you're in a way, growing up sort of on 
one path of you really enjoyed music and the child and then instantly it all changed. Yeah. Like how, I mean, I'm sure it, it of course changed your perspective on life and how everything is, but what made you, I guess in a way find the strength of like, Oh, I, I, I can still be creative and do stuff. I could see, you know, that happening to people and they just go, fine, I'll just work a desk job or I'll just do something and not care about life. Like what, what about you made you go, nope, there's still something in here. It was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty dramatic experience that I had when I was 18. I, I broke my neck. I was totally paralyzed from the neck down. Doctors told me I would never move again. I had a, I was in intensive care for a month. You know, it was like a legit, I spent an entire summer um, in a hospital. And all of the things that you see in the TV movies about it, you know, like the, the first steps in the parallel bars, seeing your toes wiggle and stuff like all of that stuff happened. But as is always the case in life, you know, it's just not, it's not, it's not the same as it is in, in the TV movie. It's not nearly, there's no, there's no inspiring soundtrack playing underneath it while it's happening. And it also takes six, nine, 12 months as opposed to the seven minute montage in the, in the show, you know, I was able to walk again for reasons I legit don't know medically, you know, uh, I was lucky. The good Lord was merciful to me and my family for whatever reason. And I got some movement back. And, um, when you get movement back, you understand that it's better than sitting in a wheelchair and you try to walk. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's not necessarily some, some brave triumph of the human spirit. Mm. It sucks to be paralyzed. And if you can walk, that's a better thing to do. So you do it, you know? And truthfully, the kind of was the same. The same was true with like finding my new artistic endeavors. You know, I I loved playing the cello. I loved being able to express myself in that way. I loved the community that you developed with people that you were playing with. And I missed it. And I was bored. So I tried out for a play. And I liked that. And I enjoyed the friendships that I made and the laughter that I heard. And so I did another one. I've never really been a plan too far out in the future guy. I really have kind of followed whatever the next step felt like the appropriate one at the time. And so my, you know, so yeah, I was, I didn't know I wanted to be an actor until I was like 27, (laughs) you know, and I didn't move to LA until I was 30, 31. So it's not, it's not the traditional, yeah, I grew up knowing I wanted to do it and moved there at 18 or 22 right out of school or whatever and got started. You know, it took me a couple of years after moving here to get started at the Groundlings. You know, I, I've, not been a, I've not had a clear plan to any of this. Hmm. I'm just kind of finding my way through it as opportunities present themselves to me. Yeah, you find what what felt right or what at the moments, what felt good and made sense. What I wanted to do, what I felt like doing at the time and then looked for an opportunity to do it. And the result has been for most of my life, I've been doing things that I want and that's nice. Well, now's the time when maybe this can be something you don't want, but it's time for the special guest famed insult comic, Raz Clifford to come in. What an honor. What an honor. (laughs) Um, he likes to come in on the show and kind of take the guests down a peg before they think they're getting too famous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of what he does. So let's get, uh, let's get Raz out here. 
All right, Rez, come on out. Oh, hey, folks. Hello. Oh, finally, a talented guest on Almost Almost Famous. Oh, wait. There's a smudge on the screen. Oh, oh, never mind. I'm just talking to Tim Horner. I thought it was Kathy Bates. <laughs> I get that a lot. Yeah, yeah I, bet you, I bet you do. Tim's career is soaring like the Hindenburg. Oh, the humanity. Oh, my gosh. May it all blow up in his face. Okay, everyone listening. If I, if I had to describe Tim's acting style, I'd say it's a lot like when I get dragged to a musical. People tell me it's good, but I don't like it. <laughs> Tim has been in this business a long, long time. Like longer than me long. Like he was been in this business so long, he was the opening vaudeville act for the Three Stooges. But they had to fire him because the audience would riot after seeing his stupid bug. Boom, you got rezzed. Had to do it. <laughs> oh, man. oh. Please walk the other way if you ever see me. Bye, Raz. Man, that guy sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's a total dick. Yeah. He's, he's not the nicest of men, but yeah. I guess, you know, he's doing what he wants. What can you do? Yeah. You do, you do something for that many decades, you're just going to keep at it. You got to find what you love. Yeah. And he loves to talk shit about people. <laughs> you've been very fortunate, very lucky that you've been, you know, a pretty consistent working actor, whether it's on stage or in television. But if, if not acting, what do you think you'd be doing? I think that I would probably be teaching. I think I'd probably be teaching. Both of my parents were teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, my, my mom was just a first grade teacher. My dad was a theater professor. But I do think he probably would have been an English professor before he would have been a theater director professionally. I think his real love was actually teaching mm-hmm. more than the subject matter with my dad. And um, like what subject would you want to teach? Would it be theater or would you be like, you know what I would want to teach? No, I probably would. Yeah, I probably would. Here's the thing. I would probably be a teacher, but I don't know that I would love it. Um, I taught in grad school, you know, as part of grad school, I taught undergrad um, mm-hmm. theater classes and I was, I was okay at it and I didn't hate it. But, you know, once I had done it, I didn't want to do it the next semester. You got to start back over and just do it again the next mm-hmm. semester and over and over and over again. I, I uh, you know, I would just get bored. And so, um, but, but having that model of teachers and the academic calendar and the, uh, I think that's probably just the direction my life would have gone. I think secretly now and were I a teacher, I would want to be a journalist. I think that's what I would actually love to do. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think one of the things I love about acting is just the storytelling element of it. But I think I'd love journalism. Yeah. Um, Teaching journalism or would you want to become? I would want to become one, I think. If, if something like that had just somehow been on my radar earlier in life, if I had known one as a kid, you know, if I had an uncle or something that was, it never occurred to me growing up. But I think, that's, I think that's a job that I would really love. In a way, I feel, maybe this is too, simplifying it too much, but comparable to acting in scene studies, but in a historical or truth-finding light where you're like, either you're doing a 
expose on a person where you're like are needing to get into the mind of that person and write with their voice or get them across or you're trying to get this truth of the moment in history and find the right quotes right questions right interviews right yeah yeah both is telling stories Mm -hmm. um and both are important and both in a way each story just like each acting job is different so there would be it wouldn't you mentioned like you could possibly be a teacher but you would find the day-to-day or each year being kind of the same thing getting boring where as a journalist it's a new project every time yeah you're constantly learning you're constantly having to you know deal with new material and i think i would really love that have you given any thought to the moment which i believe will happen because i believe in all my friends when you are a guest on a late night talk show what is the story you would want to tell i have thought about this and there's no good answer i hope if and when i'm ever a guest on a late night show i I hope i am promoting something really interesting the dominant story of my life is this overcoming paralysis mm-hmm. thing that I did, you know? So that's probably, that's always what I end up talking, <laughs> talking about with people that don't know me. Um, when they find out like the basic facts of my life, that's the thing that people are curious about really. Sure. Do you uh, ever feel like if you were to tell a different story, there'd be a thing in the back of your mind, like, you know, they want the paralysis story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you also have this certain obligation about how you're supposed to tell the paralysis story. You know, it's like, it's gotta be a little, you know, you have to be, you know, you want to be honest about it, but you also have to not make it appear like this horribly traumatic event. And you've got to, but you also have to be sensitive to the millions of people who do have spinal cord injuries. And you know what I mean? It's, it's, um, you know, I remember hearing once that people have, and it, it, like a personal inclination to either tell stories that frame them as the hero or tell stories that frame them as the loser. You know, they always recount stories from their life where, they, you know, an embarrassing moment of their life, or mm-hmm. you're more inclined to tell a story about, you know, a time that you did something awesome or said something really funny or you know what I mean, yeah. whatever. And um, I've always been the person that tell stories that frame myself in a really, really positive light. And I've always wanted to be somebody that tells stories about myself that are like uh, adorably self-deprecating or whatever. Uh, Those people always come off better on late night talk shows. So I would have to really put some thought into it. I'd have to find a story where I look like an, an adorable goof. I'd be a terrible late night guest. Now, okay, I guess then interestingly, let's say you're a late night guest for the second or third time. So you've already told okay. the paralysis story. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, like, even if it's one where you're like, this is me doing something cool. I would just love to hear, like. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I've done plenty of cool things. I'm a pretty cool guy, Daniel. Yeah. I backpacked around the Middle East for a couple of months uh, right out of college. Um, I backpacked across Egypt and Israel and Jordan. At, at one point, I had to sell a blanket to afford my bus fare back to Cairo, Egypt. I was in the, it was in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula and I ran out of money. That's pretty cool. Yeah, wait, were you by yourself? This is just I like was a, with one buddy, one of okay. my good buddies from college, still a dear friend. This feels, because most people are like, I'm going to backpack through Europe, I'm going to do, you know, yeah. this feels very biblical. Like this feels like a, 
I mean, it probably wasn't, but it just feel like to go to the Middle East, which is, I, you don't hear too many people doing that. Yeah. Well, this was uh, also, you know, 20 years ago now, um, which was a, uh, this was pre-George W. Bush even. So uh, circumstances in the world were a little bit different. But yeah, that's exactly why we went there. My buddy that I traveled with is born in Chicago, but is of Middle Eastern descent. His mom is Lebanese. His dad is Assyrian spoke Assyrian in the home growing up or whatever and had some family back in Lebanon. And so he, he had never been to the Middle East, but that, that was his heritage. I happened to have an uncle that was working at the embassy in Cairo. So we had like a free place to stay in Cairo. And those two facts kind of allowed us, you know, made it seem like a fun thing to do. So, and it was amazing. It was really amazing. It was, it, you know, those places are incredible places to go. Egypt is bonkers. You know, it really is like the cradle of civilization. And it's, I went to, I went to England in college and you're seeing, you know, whatever cathedrals built in 1100 or whatever. And that just blows your mind as an American. And then you go to Egypt and you see like the first structure humans built from stone from whatever thousand BC, you know, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating place to go. And it was great to go with backpacks on and with a dude who looked Middle Eastern, you know, it really, and, and spoke some Arabic and stuff. It really, um, it really, we just made great friends there and um, had really great experiences. Do you remember how much you got for the blanket? I think it was like 20 bucks or something. Uh, it was enough for the bus ticket. We just needed we just needed a bus ticket because my uncle lived in Cairo. We just needed a bus ticket back back to Cairo, and then he would give us a ride to the airport. And we already had our plane ticket. We just like we were on a very very strict post college budget, and we uh, splurged a little bit. And we, we, found just, we we blew it by about forty bucks, and uh, <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. What a what a cool experience! It was an amazing trip. Yeah, we saw unbelievable stuff. Well, that sounds fantastic. I guess next time, though, please tell the paralysis story. <laughs> no, no, I loved it. I did. I had no idea that you backpacked uh, through the Middle East. That's such a cool thing. That's yeah. what, a, what a neat thing. Tim, I definitely want to thank you for coming on today. I always like seeing you. Always like chatting with you. Uh, do you have anything currently that you're working on or dabbling in or excited about <laughs> nope i really don't man it's crazy yeah no i um yeah not to bring things down but no my, genuinely my life these last this last year has been largely about um child care and like physical therapy i'm i'm um i've been doing i spent a lot of time with i'm managing chronic pain uh is mm -hmm. kind of what's happening and it's it's been a tough go so there's a whole, it's a whole kind of new life regiment that I'm sort of starting and, uh, and that's really been it. So no, I, I'm, I'm waiting around for somebody to cast me right now and uh, the industry is closed. So that's the last you'll be hearing from Tim Horner. This is his final interview, so suck it up, world. He's a great guy. I wish I wish you could see more of him, but you know, alas, no. There'll be there'll be plenty of castings for you and plenty of things. I have no doubt. Uh, thanks again for being on, and thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Daniel Acker, and this has been almost almost famous.